With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 375. It's titled... Five Financial Lessons from Middle March. When we look back on the COVID-19 pandemic, there are certain sounds or movies or books that will always remind us of what it was like, particularly the spring of 2020 when we were locked down in our homes. The level of uncertainty was incredible. Most of the global economy was shut down. Whenever I hear the desperate and haunting calls of the white-winged dove, I remember the pandemic, being locked down in Phoenix, evening walks with LaPrell, our daughter, her daughter-in-law and son, and our aging Shih Tzu. I remember the novels I read, and they remind me of the pandemic, Paulette Giles' book, News of the World, and the 850-page tome, Middlemarch, by George Eliot. George Eliot was a pen name for Mary Ann Evans, who lived from 1819 to 1880. Middlemarch is probably the most financial novel of the 19th century that I can recall. It deals with day-to-day life, debts, trying to figure out what to do for a profession, giving money away, having enough money to live on. In 1856, George Eliot, at age 35, produced a scathing essay about what was wrong with popular fiction of that day. She titled it Silly Novels by Lady Novelist. She began writing Middlemarch in 1857. It was published in serial form in 1871 and 1872. Novelist Virginia Woolf described it as one of the few English novels written for grown-up people because it deals with day-to-day grown-up problems. Other prominent writers publishing in the early 1870s include Thomas Hardy, Louisa May Alcott, Jules Verne, Lewis Carroll, and Leo Tolstoy. Middlemarch is a fictional town in the Midlands region of central England. The novel is principally about the life of Dorothea Brooke, a 19-year-old woman who is expected to marry her next-door neighbor, a baronet, Sir James Chetham. Elliot writes, how should Dorothea not marry a girl so handsome and with such prospects? Nothing could hinder it but her love of extremes. She liked to read and do good works. By extremes, Elliot's referring to religious extremes. She writes, a young lady of some birth and fortune who knelt suddenly down on a brick floor by the side of a sick labor, and prayed fervently as if she thought herself living in the time of the apostles, who had strange whims of fasting like a papist, and of sitting up at night to read old theological books. Those extremes, Eliot suggested, could turn a man off. Such a wife might awaken you some fine morning 
she writes, with a new scheme for the application of her income, which would interfere with political economy and keeping of saddle horses. Dorothea doesn't marry Sir James Chetham. Instead, she marries Edward Kasabin, a man 20 years older than her, who spends most of his time researching for a book, which he never actually writes. He has rows of notebooks filled with research, and he's constantly trying to condense them, but never actually gets around to writing the book. Dorothea envisions a life of intellectual rigor and goodness, designing and building cottages for the poor, assisting her husband in producing his literary masterpiece. That introduces our first financial lesson of Middlemarch, to choose to act and stop waiting around for inspiration. Produce. Kasabin dies without ever finishing his book. Likewise, his cousin, Will Ladislaw, spends an inordinate amount of time figuring out what he's going to do with his life. He drifts along with lofty ambitions of being a poet or an artist. He travels to Europe, couldn't even decide where in Europe to go. No precise destination. He's going to just go to Europe. Eliot writes of Will. Genius, he held, is necessarily intolerant of fetters, chains, or shackles. On the one hand, it must, it must have the utmost play for its spontaneity. On the other, it may confidently await those messages from the universe which summon it to its peculiar work only placing itself in an attitude of receptivity towards all sublime chances. Waiting around for inspiration, just floating along. Interestingly, Will could see his uncle had never produced anything, but he didn't consider that his lot. Will felt he was a genius and that inspiration would come. One of Will's problems, though, is he just was unwilling to act. He spent too much time just waiting to be inspired. It was easier just not to do anything. Eliot writes, Indefinite visions of ambitions are weak against the ease of doing what is habitual or beguilingly agreeable. And we all know the difficulty of carrying out a resolve when we secretly long that it may turn out to be unnecessary. In such states of mind, the most incredulous person has a private leaning towards miracle. We're waiting for a miracle to happen. Now, Will tried a number of things, to be inspired, mostly drugs and alcohol. Elliot writes he was not excessively fond of wine, but he had several times taken too much, simply as an experiment, in that form of ecstasy. He had fasted till he was faint, and then supped on lobster. He had made himself ill with doses of opium. Nothing greatly original had resulted from these measures. In the end, Will Ladislaw falls into being a journalist a political journalist, and eventually a politician. He settled and found some work. Sometimes we just wait too long to actually choose to do something, waiting to be inspired. And one of the lessons from Middlemarch is to actually choose and act and produce. Kasabin never did. He died and never finished his book. And then later, Dorothea marries Will Ladislaw. The novel also follows a young and impoverished doctor named Tertius Lydgate. He longs to make scientific discoveries that will make him famous, but he doesn't have any real financial plan. Eliot writes, Lydgate was young, poor, ambitious. He had his half-century before him instead of behind him, 
and he had come to Middlemarch bent on doing many things that were not directly fitted to make his fortune or even secure him a good income. Lydgate felt a triumphant delight in his studies. His uncle had taken care of him, funded his education, and now Lydgate showed up in Middlemarch to, he bought a, a medical practice and wanted to spend time doing science, discovering a cure for a disease. Elliot writes of Lydgate, Hitherto in his own life, his wants had been supplied without any trouble to himself, and his first impulse was always to be liberal with half-crowns as matters of no importance to a gentleman. It had never occurred to him to devise a plan for getting half-crowns. He had always known in a general way he was not rich, but he had never felt poor, and he had no power of imagining the, the part which the want of money plays in determining the actions of men. Money had never been a motive to him. He just hadn't really thought about it. The need to make money, to earn a living. He enters into an ill-advised marriage with Rosamond Vinci, the daughter of a prosperous businessman. The Vincys had wealth. Elliot writes, the Vincys lived in an easy, profuse way, not with any new ostentation, but according to the family habits and traditions, so that the children had no standard of economy. And the elder ones retained some of their infantine notion that their father might pay for anything if he would. Mr. Vincy also had expensive Middlemarch habits. Financial lesson number two of Middlemarch is go into a marriage or partnership with, a, with clear financial expectations, a budget, because too much debt can be suffocating and can possibly destroy the relationship. Rosamond and Tertius Lydgate never discussed finances prior to their marriage and spent money to set up the house, and little by little, they became more indebted. Elliot writes of Rosamond that she was accustomed from her childhood to an extravagant household, thought that good housekeeping consisted simply in ordering the best of everything. Lydgate felt he needed to maintain appearances as a successful professional. He thought he was obliged to keep two horses, the version of having two cars, to make sure his table was supplied with plenty of food because he liked to entertain. Entertaining was a necessary part of professional prudence, Elliot writes. In addition, Lydgate paid for an expensive insurance policy on his life and high rent for his house and garden. He said, if things were done at all, they must be done properly. Lydgate says he didn't really care about his dress. He despised men who calculated the effects of his costume. He didn't want to be a fancy dresser. But he also needed a lot of fresh garments, so he had a lot of clothes. Cost him 400 to 500 pounds to set up his house with furniture and dishes. He borrowed the money. Then the annual household expenses were 1,000 pounds a year, but his medical practice only brought in 800 pounds. Elliot writes, Lydgate was in debt, and he could not succeed in keeping out of his mind for long together that he was every day getting deeper into that swamp. She describes him as being up to his chin in debt. 18 months earlier, he was poor, but he had enough. Now he was experiencing, Elliot describes, something worse than a simple deficit. He was assailed by the vulgar, hateful trials of a man who has bought and used a great many things which might have been done without and which he is unable to pay for. Creditors were sending him letters requesting money. 
But what's fascinating, it happened little by little. Elliot describes that if any one thing had been brought up as like, Lydgate, maybe you shouldn't buy that. It seemed like such a small thing to buy less expensive fish for dinner. Saying you shouldn't spend that would be simply penny wise and just too particular. It's like cutting out lattes in order to become financially independent. But it added up to where the debt became bigger and bigger and it was suffocating. Ironically, Lydgate had clients, patients that were poor, and he would adjust their recommendations for their cure based on what they could afford. He couldn't really see himself in that situation. He couldn't relate to it because, as Elliot described, his personality, his view of himself, how he saw his place in the world was tied to how he spent his money, keeping up with the Joneses. He walked by habit, not by self-criticism, wrote Elliot, but the check had come. And its novelty made it the more irritating. He'd never been in debt before. He didn't like it. He was disgusted by it, how it had snuck up on him little by little. And now his creditors were sending unpleasant letters. Lydgate was too prideful to ask help from his friends or family members, too embarrassed. And he found the silversmith and a jeweler who they had bought some of the plates and dishes from and some jewels was willing to pay the furniture salespeople and take on the debt, but they needed to make an inventory of what he owned, what they owned, in case it needed to be repossessed. It's at that point that Lydgate decides to confess to Rosamond that they're in debt. He's afraid of doing so, but he says, I'm obliged to tell you what will hurt you, Rosie, But there are things which husband and wife must think of together. I dare say it has occurred to you already that I am short of money. It's necessary for you to know because I have to give security for a time and a man must come to make an inventory of the furniture. Rosamond asks, have you not asked Papa for money? No, says Lydgate. Then I must ask him, she says. And Lydgate's like, no, Rosie, we're not going to do that. Rosie is so embarrassed about their situation that she wants to move, leave Middlemarch, because the worst thing is they come possess their furniture, or it has to be sold in an estate sale. And estate sales back then were giant spectacles. Everybody came, the embarrassment of it. Why can't we go to London, she asked, or near Durham, where your family is known? And Tertius Lydgate replies, we can go nowhere without money. Eventually, Rosie writes Lydgate's uncle behind his back to explain the situation. And Sir Godwin, Lydgate's uncle, replies by writing a scathing letter to Lydgate that how dare you ask your wife to beg on your behalf. Eventually, we'll see the debt gets paid. But the lesson is, have these discussions beforehand. It's something that we've encouraged with our kids before they get married or have gotten married is to talk about financial expectations and obviously try to live within your means. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. 
LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com David. That's linkedin.com David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Financial lesson number three is buy life insurance. Rosie and Lydgate eventually move to London. And Lydgate dies young. Elliot describes that his hair never became white. He was only 50 when he died. But he left his wife and four children provided for because he had life insurance. He also established a medical practice in London, treating gout, which Elliot describes as there is a good deal of wealth on its side. It was a disease that Rebecca Mead, a a staff writer for The New Yorker, describes as treating gout was the Victorian equivalent of becoming a cosmetic surgeon and spending your days shooting Botox into wealthy women. They were able to move to London because Dorothea paid the debt. And there's a lot of intrigue regarding the debt and and rumors that take place in the novel about Lydgate's integrity. But financial lesson number four is one of the most rewarding things we can do with money is to ease the financial burdens of others, particularly those that have a debt that's weighing on them. The relief they feel when we can help out, perhaps pay off someone's student loans or some other debt that's just weighing on them. Dorothea says, I have 700 a year of my fortune and 1900 a year that Mr. Kasaban left me and between three and 4,000 of ready money in the bank. I should like to make other people's lives better to them. It makes me very uneasy coming all to me who don't want it. But Lydgate refuses at first. He doesn't want to take the money. Dorothea presses the matter. Think how much money I have. It would be like taking a burden from me if you took some of it every year till you got free from this fettering want of income. Why should not people do these things? It is so very difficult to make shares at all even. This is one way. To fix some of the income inequality. That's what she wanted to do. 
Eventually, Lydgate does take the money and he and Rosie leave and set up in London as well as a, a bath outside of London for people to come in and basically be treated for gout and other ailments. We learn a fifth financial lesson from Rosamond's brother, Fred Vinci. He's also young, and the lesson is only lose money you can afford to lose. He never thought he would be poor. He grew up in a household where there was enough of everything. And the idea that he would have to wear trousers shrunk with washing, that his clothes didn't fit because he didn't have enough, that he'd have to eat cold mutton and have to walk because he didn't have a horse. Having a horse was the equivalent, the entitlement of having a car. He felt he was deserving. His dad gave him a horse. But Fred Vinci wasn't sure what he wanted to do with his life. He liked to play billiards, and he got into debt. He had gambling losses. A horse dealer in town, Mr. Bambridge, agreed to loan him the money. And then the debt started to accrue. It got up to 160 pounds. And again, just like with Lydgate, the debt weighed on Fred Vinci. Bambridge asked for more security, some backing. And so Fred convinces his future father-in-law, Caleb Garth, to co-sign on the note, to back it. Then Fred schemes for a way to figure out, well, how can I earn this money? Elliot writes, Fred had felt confident that he should meet the bill himself, having ample funds at disposal in his own hopefulness. You will hardly demand that his confidence should have a basis in external facts. Such confidence, we know, is something less coarse and materialistic. It is a comfortable disposition leading us to expect that the wisdom of providence or the folly of our friends, the mysteries of luck, or the still greater mystery of our high individual value in the universe will bring about agreeable issues, such as are consistent with our good taste in costume and our general preference for the best style of things. Fred just felt like he would have good luck, that it would all work out. He didn't want anything disagreeable in his life. He felt like he wasn't deserving anything disagreeable. And so he would figure out a way. Perhaps it would be a miracle that would come, but he would get the debt paid off. But he had a plan. He was a horse flipper. He decided he would borrow an additional 80 pounds from his mother, sell his horse his dad had given him, and buy an even more expensive horse, one that he could sell for an even greater profit and pay off all his debts. Fred felt that he should have a run of luck, writes Elliot, that by dint of swapping, he should gradually metamorphose a horse worth 40 pounds into a horse that would fetch 100 at any moment. It would work out, except it didn't. The newly purchased horse was a little aggressive, had vicious energy to kick. He almost killed a guy in the stable, and he ended up laming himself because the horse caught its leg in a rope in the stable. So then Caleb Garth, his future father-in-law, had to pay off the debt, wiped out their savings. Now, that is not the way to endear yourself to your future father-in-law, to have him have to pay off your gambling debts and lose their savings in return. It eventually works out. Fred redeems himself, but he never really got rid of, he married Mary Garth, but he was still always figuring out. He had a scheme. Elliot writes at the conclusion 
of the book of Fred, I cannot say that he was never again misled by his hopefulness. The yields of crops or the profits of a cattle sale usually fell below his estimates, and he was always prone to believe that he could make money by the purchase of a horse, which turned out badly, though this, Mary observed, was of course the fault of the horse, not of Fred's judgment. I like Middlemarch because it's so detailed on the emotion of money, of debt, and how it can weigh on us. And just often, just our sheer optimism that isn't grounded in reality. It's great to be an optimist, but we actually have to do things to make our plans work out. And often they don't, which is why we don't want to over-leverage ourselves. I got some feedback on the episode last week when we were talking about life cycle investing, where with life cycle investing, you borrow money when you're young and invest in the stock market on margin. I wasn't as direct about how dangerous that could be if it doesn't work out. I mentioned one could be wiped out and there would be enough time and human capital to remake the savings. But if you're two times leveraged the stock market and it falls 50%, you're wiped out. So leverage can harm, and you need to be fairly confident that you can actually magnify the return or have some other plan to earn back the money, which Fred did not have in his case. So we learn in Middlemarch to beware of debt, to communicate with our partners about our financial situation, to have realistic plans, to be willing to help others, to ease their burdens. And ultimately, we learn many of our dreams don't come out the way we thought, but we can still live a happy life, and it can be a fulfilling life. At the end of the book, Eliot describes Dorothea and says, but the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who live faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. It's the good that other people do that pave the way often for how things work out for us. And they're often not recognized. They're not famous. They just live good lives, help their family, help their friends, learn from their mistakes, and they go about trying to do good. Those then are some financial lessons of Middlemarch. It's a great novel. If you haven't read it, I would encourage you to do so. It takes a long time, but it is incredibly enjoyable. And that's episode 375. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter? It's where I share an essay on money investing in the economy each week to that list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for the Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for almost seven years now. Plus Membership gives members the tools and resources they need to manage their investment portfolios. Not only can you tap into my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but my research is backed by 
top-tier institutional research partners such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSCI, Refinitiv Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You also access a community of over a thousand members to get their insights. Money for the Rest Was Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to institutional research services that cost tens of thousands of dollars per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.